Welcome to Playmakers, the game industry podcast. Whether you work at a studio, publisher, service provider, or startup, this is the podcast that will give you all the information and entertainment you need to succeed in the game industry. Who am I? Just your friendly neighborhood veteran designer and producer, Jordan Blackman. In each episode of Playmakers, I go to work uncovering insights, tactics, and know-how from a wide range of game industry luminaries. My goal? To help you win the game of making games. Are you ready? Then let's begin. Innovation. That is the word of the day. That is the word of today's episode. An interview with Nick Fortunio. Nick is kind of a well-known dude in the New York game scene. He's an entrepreneur, an interactive narrative game designer, and he is the founder and principal of Playmatics, which is a game development company that has created experiences for some really interesting on the edge applications and organizations. They've done stuff for ProPublica, for Red Bull, for AMC for Disney, for the American Museum of Natural History, for the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, et cetera, et cetera. Nick also teaches game design and interactive narrative design at several places, Columbia University, Parsons School of Design, et cetera, and has helped construct game design and immersive storytelling curriculums for these organizations. And what I wanted to dig in deep with with Nick and and what I think you're going to get a lot out of in terms of this episode is the art of doing truly innovative game design. What does that mean? How do you work from first principles? How do you experiment to get to a result? How do you create emotions, feelings, aesthetics when you're not starting with, oh, it's a first person shooter, but with when you're starting with, well, how do we create a certain feeling, a certain experience, a certain learning in a person, right? These different kind of goals that are more first principle based, and then you design to them. Nick is one of the best in the world at doing this over at uh, Playmatic. So we dive deep. We talk about his journey, you know, from an intern to a founder, how he's kept Playmatics thriving for so long when so many companies ha- who don't even innovate have, uh, haven't made it nearly as long. The principles of game design that he uses to really anchor his work, how failing, what he calls failing up in game design fits in. He, as, as other guests that we've had on the show use, he also is a big fan of the MDA framework, mechanics, dynamics, aesthetics. So we talk about that and how it fits into his process and how Nick hires for game designers and producers, how he kind of evaluates what's taught in school versus what he needs in his studio and in his team and where artificial intelligence is going to be fitting into gaming technology in the future. Lots of stuff in this episode. I think I mentioned it during the interview. I said, you know, I think people are going to have to listen to this one twice because there's so much good stuff in it and it comes at you pretty fast. It's a great episode. I'm excited to share this interview with you real quick. Before I do, please subscribe. Please write us a review because, you know, that's how that's how we grow. That's how we do. And if you know someone who is innovating in game design, if you know someone who's a game designer and wants to bring more innovation to their work, please share this episode with them so that they can get the benefit of the incredible knowledge of our guest. Thank you so much. And with that, I present the interview with Nick Fortunio. Nick, welcome to Playmakers. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I remember the first time that I got to meet you was when I was working with Area Code and I was visiting them and I was in New York and we were eating lunch outside somewhere and you walked around the corner and, you know, mutual friend of ours, Dimitri, is like, that's Nicholas right there. I was like, he's the creator of Diner Dash. I was like, well, that's awesome. I was like starstruck. I was, I was totally, <laughs> totally thought it was the coolest thing. And so it's, it's great to have you on the show and to be able to dive into this stuff a little bit with you. 
No, thank you so much. Area code, you're, you're bringing me back. That was, that was several years ago now. <laughs> yeah. I figured we could start with your story up to Playmatics because to me, it's like you appeared with Playmatics and I don't know anything about your history before that. Yeah, so I became a game designer uh, at a small company called Game Lab uh, many, many years ago. That was like 1999. Um, I had been an English teacher at the college level, and I was pursuing graduate education in English, but I was sort of doing hobbyist game design on the side in the tabletop and live action role playing spaces. And I met Eric Zimmerman through that and he hired me to to be really kind of like the first intern at Game Lab. This was when Game Lab was four people. And I basically grew up there as a game designer. And, you know, that was where Diner Dash happened. That was where Plantasia happened. That was where IED happened. And a lot of my early games came out. And after being there for many years and eventually moving up to being director of game design there, I stepped away from Playmatics. I had met Margaret Wallace and, and we decided to start a company called Rebel Monkey. We raised venture capital for Rebel Monkey and we kind of rode the wave of that until about 2008, 2009 when the financial crash brought us down. And from the ashes of that, Playmatics formed. So I had worked for a startup in games, like, you know, Game Lab being one of the original independent game studios in the early days of the casual uh, revolution. And then I had started another company that was, a, you know, like a Series A venture-backed company in games before Playmatics came about. Got it. Okay. We actually had Eric on the show, but I didn't have those jigsaws connected between Game Lab and Playmatic. So thank you for that. Kind of coming from that lineage, so I could see how innovation was kind of like in your DNA from the very beginning. What was the original idea with Playmatics? Well, it, what was interesting about Playmatics was that when Margaret and I were running Rebel Monkey, uh, we didn't intend to take venture capital. That's not how the company started. We were really just like, she was leaving a company that she had been working with for a while. I was getting started and we kind of realized, oh, we think we could do this. We think we can make these decisions, which isn't to say that um, Eric and Peter Lee, who was the other founder of Game Lab, weren't making good decisions or weren't handling the company well. That wasn't the issue at all. It was more that, you know, I recognized I could make those decisions. Margaret had been a CEO and, and been a, you know, EP at many places. So we were like, well, we could do this together and we could make our own kind of games. When Rebel Monkey took venture capital, we were sort of on the VC role coaster and the VC roller coaster either ends with you rich or ends with you out of business and we like ended up <laughs> like out of business <laughs> and in the ashes of that we were like well we need to do something and so we started consulting but the because of our reputation our consulting immediately turned into a game job and we needed to we were like okay well we have to do something to get this together and that's when we kind of formed Playmatics was like oh well we have you know in the ashes of rebel monkey we have like whole development teams we can just pull one of those up and start something new and then we started playmatics and when we did we sort of made a commitment to ourselves that like well we're going to keep up this sort of innovative spirit that we carried you know from before but we're going to really now focus on that rather than like dedicating ourselves to one project we're going to be you know, working on a number of different projects. And we're going to really try to keep experimenting in the medium and keep doing what I found interesting, which was pushing the boundaries of what games are and what games can be. When did Playmatics start? What year was it? That was 2009. Okay, so it's, you know, it's been a, a very impressive run. And I think, you know, that kind of remit to innovate, a lot of times companies don't make it that long, you know, especially self-funded, doing new things. Uh, how how have you managed to, to accomplish that? It has not been easy to... to just to say that up front and a lot of 
companies that were alongside us that we considered peers and had great respect for didn't last as long as we did that were that were also doing interesting work. So I feel like it would be dishonest not to say that there was some luck in that we rolled the dice and we did okay because there were just as smart people alongside us. I think there were kind of two big lessons that I had about keeping Playmatics going for as long as we have. It's the, the first is we pivoted a lot to different kinds of design. Like we didn't come at our kind of work as like really looking specifically at one type of game or one IP that we were pushing. We, we saw it as a methodology and then we allowed ourselves to sort of float with the market. So for a good stretch of our history, we've done games for impact, right? We've done games with politics, games with education, games with healthcare. That was not the intent of Playmatics, right? Like that wasn't where we started. We were doing brand-based games when we started, but that market just dried up completely from the, from the access points that we had. So we had to do something else. And I saw that there were opportunities in games for impact that were really strong. And, you know, we pivoted in that direction and we've done a lot of that over time. So part of it is realizing that like the skill set of innovative game design was like useful in a lot of different places. And as long as we had a methodology to apply it and we could pitch it, we could keep that going. And so we've had consistent work basically for 12 years. The second thing is that I cultivate and and I think, you know, our, our company in general has has encouraged people to cultivate a lot of sort of network presence, a lot of conference presence. I have spoken a lot at conferences and workshops and taken part in a lot of, you know, sort of convocation kind of events and a lot of uh, mentorship kind of events and things like that. I enjoy that. I'm a teacher, but I also think it's it's incredibly useful to like finding a way to keep a company going if you're constantly making contact with people. Because if you can get on people's radar that like, oh, you have a service that they can remember, that eventually like filters out to people who are looking for work. And so most of the work that comes into Playmatics, we're reached out to, right? It's not work I hunt for. It's that like people come to us looking for things. And that's because, you know, I've spent so many years just cultivating relationships over time that, you know, people now know we exist. And so when they need something, they know to talk to us. Yeah. And I would say, you know, from a little bit of an outside perspective that, not only are you, you know, are you out there and people know you, but also you stand for something. And I think that also makes it easier for people to reach out to you because they kind of know what things make sense to reach out to you for. Yeah, and, and we it's a conversation we have very honestly with people. I mean, when when people come to us and say something like, oh, well, we just we want a game that's going to be like Flappy Bird. We're like, that's not we're, you shouldn't come to us for that, right? That's not what we're good at. We're not a purely technical company. We're not like a quick turnaround company. That's not like what we specialize in. What we're good at is like solving problems for people. Uh, it makes your business interesting, right? Because you often end up working with people outside entertainment. Right. So I've, I've worked a lot, like I said, with scientists, with journalists, with educators. These are people who don't necessarily know software development processes. These are people who aren't familiar with the commercial marketplace. And that's been really interesting work. But it also means that that at Playmatics, we've gotten to work on what I consider really crazy stuff, which has been fun. There's something about the fact that like I know that when I work, I get to work on things that I'm really trying to solve new problems that is very rewarding to me. And I think you're right that like people recognize that that's what we do. And so the people who come in the door are primed for that, right? We've selected for them. And so those relationships are pretty strong because you know they know they need something that I can provide and I know that the work will be interesting for me because it's gonna ask me to do something different. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I'm, I'm curious, well, I think for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with, you know, what Playmatics does, if we could go through some examples of like what these problems are and how you're solving them. Sure. So at Playmatics, what we say is that we do innovative game design, which we shorthand to be uh, games about non-game things for people who don't play games. Um, and that 
that has often meant that we'll do games that go into classrooms and that like teach students things about history. So we've done games around um, history, uh, around math, around reading. We have a game that came out just recently and is going to be promoted a little bit more called Revolutionary Choices, which is about teaching students like the actual causes and forces involved in the American Revolution, which is often misunderstood. You know, like people think that we like oh, there was a tea party and then we threw the British out of America and like and like kind of none of that is true <laughs> actually in the way the war went. And so it's a, it's designed to teach people that kind of stuff. Um, but then we've also done work with journalists. Uh, the one I'm most proud of is a game called The Waiting Game with ProPublica, which is about the asylum process in the United States and sort of giving people insight into what an asylum seeker is and what it is like to try to seek asylum in the United States. But then we've also done a lot of work with brands around, you know, like less game friendly, but very interesting, you know, properties. So like we did a lot of work with Breaking Bad back in the day doing like interactive storytelling with Breaking Bad and, you know, building out, you know, sort of like transmedial properties around the IP. Uh, and that was really interesting, right? Because Breaking Bad doesn't automatically turn into a game the way other properties do. So like stuff like that is the kind of thing we think about. And then I've, as a consultant, worked with people in politics around voting and around like like thinking about voting rights, you know, around topics ranging from gamification of entertainment platforms to like, you know, real world games that explore historic locations. And so all of that stuff is essentially like taking game design techniques and then applying them either as games or as gamifications to topics where they're what, what I like to say is instrumentalized, right? They're used to get you to do, dive deeper into a brand. They're used to get you to learn something. They're used to be a piece of research, right? So that the, the purpose of the game, this is another kind of project we've worked on is meant to like get you to respond and then we collect your responses just to see what your responses are to have a better understanding of some sociological function or some you know like some some practice in psychology so that kind of stuff is is really what we specialize in and what that means is we don't really work in genre right we don't it's not like someone comes to us and says we want an rts or we want a moba right like we have to build things new every time we sit down. And that process is sort of like us taking pieces from games and either inventing whole new kinds of games or using the elements of games that are useful to the goal that we have. Yeah, I mean, the way I was thinking about what you are describing is that your team that does a lot of designing kind of on first principles, whereas lots of games are like, hey, we start with all this stuff in place and we're going to change or add. Whereas it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is blank sheet of paper, what mechanics make sense for this scenario? Yeah, and it's, it, you know, it's honestly the way I was taught, you know, it, it, it was like a practice that I had in like a, like a nascent form when I was a hobbyist, but then like working closely with like Eric Zimmerman and Frank Lance and Peter Lee, we cultivated this approach to games that I think, I think everyone would speak to, which is like you said, not really looking at it from specific channels of games and rather looking at games as pieces that we could take apart and that there were principles to that that we could use. I, I'm really happy I had that start and I've really cultivated that skill because I think it makes you more flexible as a game designer. You're not like stuck. And especially when you're working in, you know, weird boundary cases, those genre don't really help you because like those genre weren't designed to do the things you're trying to do. So you, you can't just take the hammer and hit the nail. You have to like build the tool to hit the weird nail like thing and <laughs> like knowing like how to build a hammer is like a really interesting skill to have as an artist now i i realize that this is a bit of an impossible task for a short podcast interview but it, you know can we take some of those 
principles and give them to the audience, like some things that people can use as they start to think about game design in this different way? Where could we start? I, I mean, one of them is just the realization that games genre as they exist right now are all relatively young and actually not that deeply considered relative to other forms of entertainment, right? Like, like you know, so, so the fact that we have the genre we have has been an evolutionary kind of process that's led us to the results we get, right? But that doesn't mean that they're locked in stone or the best ones we have. So when you recognize that, you start to see that, oh, well, you know, like certain conventions that exist in games exist just because of tradition, and that's not a really necessarily good reason to continue them. But that also means that you start looking at games in a broader way to sort of like think about them as components that can be pulled apart. And so part of the practice that we engage in is to be very, very omnivorous players in terms of not just in terms of games we play on in the digital space, but in terms of all media. And so like I am constantly playing board games. I'm constantly exploring real world games. I spend a lot of time in immersive theater and in, you know, interactive experiences online because I'm like picking up things from them that are just interactions that I think are useful. And I, I'm a very big formalist. I'm a serious banner carrier for MDA approaches. And I think that when we dissect games those ways and we kind of see them as mechanical structures, that then allows us to get out of the thinking that like, oh no, if I start going down an RPG channel, I have to stay in the RPG lanes and I can't deviate. I can think about like progression systems as a thing. I can think about, you know, turn-based combat as a thing. I can think about character statistics as a thing. And then I can like take them apart from each other and put them together in interesting ways. I think that's much more common, honestly, in the board game industry where the need for mechanics to be original for the games to sell is like driving them to like innovate and innovate and innovate. So you had this like, just to take an example, you had this like wild proliferation of werewolf variants a few years ago, right? Like where like just a bunch of games were coming out that were essentially different versions of werewolf, but with different mechanics, but they're not werewolf, right? Like none of them are werewolf. They're all a step away from werewolf introducing like, you know, I'm thinking of things like, you know, ranging from bang to the resistance you know, to masquerade, like these games that are all about hidden roles, but they use hidden roles in completely different ways. And that that kind of game design is, I think, really useful. And then it's leaning very hard into iterative design. You have to like really, really, really trust the prototyping process because you often don't know what you're doing. And so you have to make very crude, fast, early prototypes, and you have to have very clear prototyping questions to test things because you can actually like experiment your way to mechanics. And often the process is not like, you know, we sit around in a room until we have the great idea and then we make it. It's it's very often a sloppy making process, but guided by sort of like first principles that are more elemental. And then we just like throw things together and watch them break over and over again. And I mean, anybody who game designs knows that this is the process, right? Like I'm not saying anything radical, but you can push that really hard. You can do that from very, very raw bits and come up with interesting things. And so I, when I talk to people about being innovative in game design, I kind of encourage them to just like test extremely broken early things that are just wild because you can learn things from those tests that can lead you to things you never thought could exist. And it's a way of getting around like local maxima problems in, in emergent design. I love that. So, you know, if, if people are going to try some things to just make the differences as big as possible. And don't worry about whether that individual thing is going to be the thing. It's more, what are you going to learn from that? It's teaching people that that failing in a prototyping process is not 
missing the mark. It's like learning something you carry forward. And so having a prototype that fails actually is a valuable step in the process because you will learn things from that prototype, either like things to stay dramatically away from, but just as likely there'll be seeds of things that become interesting and you just evolve off of those seeds. And, you know, particularly when you're working with health professionals or educators who, you know, they don't, what the game mechanic is, is not important to them, right? Like that's not what they're after. They're after making sure the kids learn X or that people engage in behavior change. You can experiment that way because they, they're not going to mind if the mechanic changes. So you can be very flexible with that. And that, that methodology serves very well in those contexts because then you can just chase the fun wherever it happens to go as long as you keep the goals in mind. And I think that becomes a really good process for innovative game design, in even in commercial settings, because you don't get stuck on things. You can just like make and break and make and break and make and break. And that I think can evolve games into really amazing directions. Yeah. And I want to clarify something. You had mentioned MDA. That's mechanics, dynamics, aesthetics. We had Robin Hunnicky on the show. We talked a little bit about that there. I'm curious how you bring that into your this process that you're describing. I think that MDA is the best single theoretical approach we have to games that exist right now. And I think it really kind of instructs us a lot about like how games create what the system calls aesthetics, but really like mood or purpose or intent. Um, and the way that we use it essentially is by using, we use the MDA technique to dissect games so that we can see their mechanical structures and specifically the relationships between the mechanics and what the theory calls dynamics, which I just think of as play, right? Like when you give people these pieces, what do they do with them, right? How do they make decisions with them? And that connection, it, once you start understanding it, it becomes really interesting because then you get these sort of like dynamic tricks that you can use in different contexts. And so like a simple example is like a timer makes people stressed out. That's like a good basic game design principle, right? That's so good. These are the first principles that we're talking about. So MDA is almost a, the method to tease apart these principles that then you can apply to these problems. Yeah, and so you can look at two games that are next to each other that are similar and look at the different aesthetics they have and then you just back up to the play and like, well, what am I doing that's differently that's making me feel differently? Oh, what are the pieces that made me do that? And then you start to come up with this vocabulary of, you know, rhetorics is how I think of it, that then you can just apply in different contexts. And so the reason why I think MDA is so valuable is not, it's not like MDA is not a tool that's going to fix your game. That's not how it works. It's not like that kind of theory. It's a fundamental approach to thinking about games that then gives you a heuristic to then, you know, like take games apart and then think about the pieces of them as they affect play. And once you can do that, then you have a bunch of different things you can use. So you can borrow from games pretty liberally because you have a relationship that you're setting up where it's like, oh, that rule makes this play, makes this feeling. Okay, I could use that feeling. So let me get that play. Will that rule create that play in my game? Maybe, maybe not, but it's a starting place. And then I can start experimenting. And that that's, I think, a good innovative process. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And from what I've seen of kind of this New York game scene, you know, I think two of the pieces that I've noticed that you've been talking about, one is the iterative design and prototyping and a lot of paper prototyping, and also actually a lot of discussion, a lot of sort of, hey, let's actually think through why we're choosing the things we're choosing. And I think MDA is a really great way, you know, I understand how MDA is crucial for kind of the interface for those two things. And I think you're right to highlight it as sort of a New York 
I mean, it's not unique to New York, right? But like, I think there was a seed that came out of, you know, RGA and through Game Lab that like really, you can see the roots of that, like kind of push that kind of methodology out. And there's a, there's a kind of intellectualism to, to it, which is, you know, good and bad. I mean, it's, it depends on your taste <laughs> about these things, I guess. But I really enjoy it because it doesn't just make me, I think, a better designer. It makes me a better teacher and it makes me a better critic of games, which I think are all valuable components, not just to my creative practice, but to my, you know, the variety of roles that I fill in the game industry. It's an exciting energy to be around. You know, it's definitely a vibe and a feeling. And when when I was there hanging out with that group, yeah, it was a blast just being able to listen in on these conversations. Uh, the fun of Game Lab was, you know, having those kinds of design conversations with Eric and Frank and Greg and Mattia and Alona and, the, you know, Catherine and the other people who kind of came through the game lab world and just like really colliding in these kind of game design conversations. It just is a magical, I, I think there's these kind of magical spaces in, in creative fields. And that I think was one of them, but you know, and when you think about it, it's like the street game festival come out of play, which I co-founded with Greg Treffry and Mattia Romeo and Catherine Herdlick that came out of the relationships that formed at game lab. And that was an innovative street game space, right? Like we kind of applied that to the silly public play activities, but we brought the same kind of methodology, the same, like, critical, slightly intellectual, very, very prototype driven, very, very discussion oriented, collaborative game design process to like playing games in public. And so I think it's been a really wonderful kind of school of thought, I guess, around games that's produced a lot of really interesting work. Have you found, I mean, I know that kind of the NYU game design school is part of that scene. As someone running your own studio, bringing in employees, how have you kind of brought this attitude to your employees now that you you know you have other designers working for you help them to grow into this way of doing things i mean i learned it through a modeling and experimentation process like i was sort of in the trenches with people who are doing it and so i definitely model that approach i i look for people when i hire when i hire all positions but but particularly game designers and producers i look for people who have that kind of omnivorousness and that flexibility and have like a critical mindset and you can you can see it and game school Schools. I think the great benefit of having schools of game design is that more people are being taught that approach. And so you see a subset of students coming out of game schools who just like naturally think of games that way. And that's very exciting because it means that they can have that conversation from day one. Um, and then it's just, there's just certain kinds of things you have to cultivate. You have to cultivate a bit of mercilessness about reviewing builds and like, uh, you have to get people out of the desire to be kind and to compliment and to, and to make everybody feel good. You have to be really merciless about how bad builds are because that's the only way you grow, but you also have to cultivate a lack of preciousness around the things you make. You just like get used to your stuff breaking and you feel comfortable falling on your face a lot. And like, that's a lot of what the the early stuff is. And I, I can't tell you how many designers I've had conversations with about how they don't want to show me bad things. And I have to basically coach them to come forward with the bad thing very confidently. It's like, I don't care if it fails. That's not the purpose of this test, right? I don't expect your game to be good. Like I actually expect it to break. I want to watch it break. That's the value. And having people become comfortable with failure is the biggest lesson that you have to impart. I'm curious if, um, would you say Playmatics spends more time in group meetings than other, than a typical studio or, or less? Like, because there is this, these two sides, this kind of active, iterative, prototype driven, build driven. And then there's also this intellectual, rational, teasing things apart so that you can put them back together. I'm just kind of curious how you think that nets out in terms of time talking. 
I think we probably spend a bit more time, a little bit more time, but not as much as people think and in a different place because we tend not to think a lot when we start because because we think that that's done without data, right? Like like who knows what's going to happen when we make things. So we have a tendency to push people out of early ideation processes just to get prototype specs together or to get paper prototypes together really fast. And then a lot of the talking happens simultaneously with testing because I think once you start once you really get deep in an iterative process, you don't even need to make a game to test it. You can just make an interaction and try it on the fly and like see if it works and then break it immediately and move beyond it. So often the discussions are very like, we'll have like very hands-on. We'll have like a bunch of plastic pieces and paper in front of us and we'll be just drawing things and going as we go. And I actually have a phrase that I use with everyone that I work with that I call sick wit, which it means can't know will test, which is just a shorthand way of saying, shut up. We don't know what we're talking about. Right, like, like we're, we're all arguing for something that we can't prove. So why don't we just guess and then keep moving? And so people can invoke that just to be like, we've talked about this too long. Just pick a number or just like write something on the card and we'll try it. Because when it breaks, we'll know it broke and we'll know how to fix it. But if we keep talking about it, we're just going to waste time. Analysis is valuable when you have data. So we do a lot more analysis after tests. We don't plan before tests. We just make and look. And that looking then can actually facilitate conversation. Nick, there's been so much good stuff already. I do want to slightly change tack here and talk a little bit about some of the technologies that are coming down the road and some of the changes to the industry and to the world, really, from what's happened over the last year, which is, you know, coronavirus. You had mentioned, and, and I saw in my research, that Playmatics has worked on so many new technologies over the years. So I thought you would be a great person to talk to about, you know, what what's actually going to be super disruptive in the next, let's say, two to five years versus, you know, what might not be? Yeah, I mean, I'm constantly fascinated by this question. And I think that there's a lot of hype cycles, right? And I think that it's, it's a matter of like kind of divining from the hype cycles what's going to happen. I think that a lot of the things we're seeing right now are interesting, less in their immediate manifestations and more in like where they're heading down the road, right? I think augmented reality is fascinating. I think a lot of the cases of augmented reality right now aren't great, but like the the technology is kind of amazing and we're seeing it develop out in really interesting ways. I'm a big believer in the potential of artificial intelligence, but not in the ways they're often talked about in the more hidden ways that they actually exist, right? Like that, that artificial intelligence is smoothing rails for things in good and bad ways. And that like, if we think of artificial intelligence as an intermediary that's helping us do the things we do, um, and then we start worrying more about how it does that. That's really fascinating to me. And I've seen... What do you mean by smoothing rails? Oh, well, just that like, you know, artificial intelligence as exists in the world is like the YouTube recommendation engine or, you know, like smart design features in office software, right? It's stuff that's like more, it's much less like the robot tells you what to do as the robot sort of makes the right suggestions that then you choose from, um, which is problematic in tons of ways, right? Because there's, there's, a, there's enormous systemic bias that gets built into those systems from design. So the, I'm not saying that this is utopian. But what I think is really interesting are these questions of like, well, what, what does it do to game development when you have like machine learning, not necessarily in the development in, not just in the live environment, but the machine learning in the development process around testing or the machine machine learning in terms of like, what would it mean for a machine learning device to do heat maps for you and like learn from those heat maps of player attention, right? Like 
That's the kind of stuff that I find really, really, really fascinating. I think there has been a fascinating set of evolutions in web technology that that was largely invisible, that like mainly came out of online theater, that suddenly people rediscovered sockets and people rediscovered that you could like do interesting things on the web with websites. And given the rise of responsive web technologies as ways of delivering content to phones, I think there's certainly enormous potential for those experiences to get more interesting. And live experience online has been really interesting to watch because everything right now, and I and I, I think I'm speaking for almost everyone in this space, is like real early. Like people don't know what to do with it yet. But watching people try has been fascinating because it's it's disrupting all of these industries that had gotten stuck, right? Like all of this like immersive theater industry and these sort of like quasi game escape room industries, all that stuff got broken by the fact that you couldn't be in public. But the breaking of it led to questions of the design principles that have been fascinating to watch unravel. And I think that 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 stuff's going to come roaring back as soon as we're on the other side of this. But it's not going to come back the same way. And I, I think the disruption that happened there, you know, not that I I'm happy that any of these things happened in the world, but I'm really excited to see like what people have learned from those spaces. And then I've done a lot of tabletop role-playing in Zoom. And a lot of people have done a lot of tabletop role-playing in Zoom. That's been a huge change in the world. And I'm wondering what that's taught us about being online with people and like kind of how games serve a role in having people connect online. And so I'm really curious about that. I think there's, it's not an accident that like, you're talking, you know, in the pandemic, you're talking about Roblox, Fortnite, Among Us, Animal Crossing, right? Like the games that really define the the pandemic in certain ways are social. There's they're games that were social. Like in social in different ways, which is really interesting, right? Like like looking at those games in particular and starting to think about, well, like what were the things that made those games hit is I think gonna be a question of game studies for years. I've heard the pandemic called the great accelerant or the great accelerator, because <laughs> we're now living, you know, five years further into the future than we might have been had it not happened. But I'm still trying to figure out what that means for the game industry. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that anybody knows. I think one thing is that I think a lot of us figured out that like, having a programmer in the office, if that wasn't already clearly kind of dumb is pretty dumb, right? To have the person who spends all their day coding actually commuting and then being forced to be distracted by you, <laughs> that probably was never a good idea, right? And, you know, learning those collaborative methods have has been really interesting. And, you know, like Playmatics became, you know, like many companies, completely virtual in the pandemic. We had been somewhat virtual before that, but we, we actually, our office ceased to exist, like the whole building closed. So we are actually like a homeless company at this moment. How's that affecting these innovation strategies and techniques? Uh, it was really hard for the design uh, side of it because um, it's it's hard to get the same kind of fluid conversations moving um, when you're not in person. And so on the projects we were working on at the time, we had to innovate these sort of like siloed and then coming together innovation processes where we would have people just like prototype on their own and then come back with their results, which was okay because everybody I've worked with at the time I'd worked with for a while. Thankfully, we've started a, I can't, talk about it much right now, but we started a bigger and a much more radical uh, innovation project recently. And it's just after we, many of us had been vaccinated. And so as soon as that happened, I was like, we have to be meeting like once or twice a week, just so we can like sit in a room for four hours and hit stuff. 
And I have to say that like getting back to doing that, I couldn't believe how much I didn't have over the last year. Like I, I realized how much faster we could move when we could see each other and have a conversation and interrupt. It was, it was such a much better experience. So I'm not a big believer that virtual work is gonna destroy all in-person activities. As a teacher, I've seen it be pretty horrific, actually what this does. And I think that there's like a role in design for having those things work. But I think what it's doing from a company perspective is it's sort of challenging us to like really recognize that being present has a value and you have to consider its value because that's not always true. It is not always best for everyone to be present. There are types of work that work better when people can be remote and being generous about that and respecting people's desires around that, but then really thinking about, you know, what the value of in-person stuff is so you can maximize it. Um, that's, I think, one of the biggest changes that's coming to work, at least in Playmatics, that has been a significant and I think positive change. Nicholas, thank you for being present with me here remotely. Oh, no, thanks so much, Jordan. This has been a lot of fun. I think this is one that people are going to want to listen to multiple times because you said a lot. Um, <laughs> and I think there's a lot in there that people will need to tease out and uh, and hopefully implement. I really appreciate it. What was it? Sick wit? Yeah, sick wit. Yeah. I really like that because I'm constantly I'm constantly wrestling that problem where people <laughs> just want to keep arguing where we have there is no we have no way to solve it until we just do something. You know, it's funny because I have to like I have to hit this as hard as I can in game design classes because people won't believe me and I'm like, "Guess, just guess, just guess, stop thinking, just guess." It's like, "How many because I'm like, I don't know how many cars I have in the hand." And I'm just like, "Four? Would four be okay?" And they're like, "I don't know." And I'm like, "Would four be okay?" And they're like, "Yeah, I guess so." And I'm like, "Great, try it." And it's like, "No, I think five. Great, try that." Right? Like just stop worrying because it'll break and you'll see it and you'll know. Stop overthinking things. Yeah, it's it's so hard to get people outside of the game industry to understand that methodology because no one wants to do it. Totally. Well, you know, now I want to put that in the interview too because that was also good. <laughs> Another episode of Playmakers Podcast is in the bag. And if you want the show notes with all the links wrapped up with a bow for you, you can find all that at playmakerspodcast.com. That's playmakerspodcast.com. If you're interested in giving some feedback on what you'd like to see on future episodes, you can also reach out to me there. And in the meantime, if you want to support what we do, the way to do that is to write us a review and subscribe. I will see you on the next episode. We have some great stuff coming your way. So I will catch you then on Playmakers. <laughs>